So this signals that the transferred assets themselves were sticking to women, the flypaper effect, um, in this setting where women were the named recipient. But when households made investments in new assets rather than the ones transferred from the program, these assets were typically owned solely by men. And this actually makes relative resource control in the household more unequal and skewed more to men overall, despite the original transfer going to women. BRAC's Targeting the Ultra Poor, or TUP program, is famous in the development world for graduating ultra-poor households out of poverty. Since it began in 2002, the TUP program has served more than 2 million ultra-poor households in Bangladesh. Among several other features, the program transfers assets, mainly livestock, to the women of the ultra-poor households and provides them with training for the maintenance and upbringing. But how much does this asset transfer help the woman? And how does this change the intra-household power dynamics? In this episode, we turn to Shalini Roy, a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, for an answer to this question. Welcome to Banglanomics, a podcast series to propagate economics research for the masses and students of economics with a focus on Bangladesh. Hello, Shalini. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Before we talk about the paper in question today, I, I just wanted to quickly ask you, uh, especially about your motivation. What motivated you to be uh, an applied researcher in economics? So I would say my path was a combination of good mentors and honestly, good luck. Um, I actually started college planning to study chemistry, um, but first I discovered I was a bit too clumsy to be in a lab. Um, and second, though I liked the rigor of science, um, I realized I missed not having intuition for how things worked. Um, you know, I could memorize organic chemistry reactions, but I didn't find them intuitive. Um, and then I took my first college economics class and I kind of found that combination of rigor and intuition um, essentially a disciplined way of looking at human behavior. And then from there, um, frankly, again, I was just very lucky to get an internship with an economics professor who was doing policy research. Um, I really liked seeing how these tools could be used to inform policymaking. Um, and when I took a course in development economics, again, I felt lucky to have a professor who framed the subject in a way that resonated with me. Um, not kind of blaming people for their poverty or pathologizing poverty, but framing the topic as everyone doing their best with the options they had and the environment they found themselves in, and reflecting that these environments were complex, shaped by history, sociology, anthropology, psychology, so many things, um, but also that it was possible through policy and programming to change some aspects of the environment or change the range of options that people could choose in those environments in ways that could support them to make real improvements in their lives. Um, and so all of these brought me toward applied economics research and development that could inform policy um, and set me on the path I ended up on. So I did my PhD and then I've happily been at IFPRI ever since, um, now for almost 14 years. Today's paper is uh, the one that was published in JDE. So it's the fly paper effects in transfers targeted to women, evidence from BRAC's targeting the ultra poor program in Bangladesh. 
um, I was curious about what was the prime motivator behind the study, and if you could give an overview of the BRAC's uh, TUP program while you're talking about that for the audience, I think that would be fantastic. Um, so first is quick background. Um, more than 10 years back, some of my colleagues at IFBRI and ILRI received funding from the Gates Foundation to start a project called the Gender, Agriculture, and Assets Project, or GAP with two A's. Um, the idea was to work with a variety of agricultural de development projects across Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, um, looking specifically at what these projects' impacts were on men's and women's assets and on whether gender targeting made a difference for these outcomes. So why men's and women's assets? Well, we know that the ability to access control and own productive assets, um, land, labor, finance, social capital, many other things, allows people to create stable and productive lives. But we also know men and women have very different access to and control over these. Um, and we know that all members of a household don't pool resources, don't share preferences, and so it does matter who in the household has this access and control. At the same time, agricultural development programs often focus on building assets, but it's typically at the household level. Um, and so this GAP project was motivated by the fact that we knew relatively little about how these programs affect men's and women's access to and control over assets differentially. Um, a key feature of these GAP studies was that they were mixed method, so not just quantitative research, but also qualitative which helped interpret the how and why from the quantitative work, but also um, illuminated concepts of what um, access to control over ownership of assets actually meant in different contexts. And this really is complex, including on gender dimensions. Um, you know, when a woman says that she owns a cow, does she simply mean that she does all the work for it or can she actually make decisions about it, including whether it's sold, what can she control the proceeds and so on. So the projects that GAP worked with were really initiated by the agricultural development projects themselves. Um, so BRAC was among those that applied. Um, BRAC and Bangladesh submitted a great proposal to look at the effects of their graduation program. As you mentioned, the challenging the frontiers of poverty reduction, targeting the ultra poor or CFPR TOOP or just TOOP on gendered access to and control over assets. Um, so very briefly, the goal of that TOOP program was to support ultra poor households um, to graduate from kind of ultra poverty through a combination of asset transfers and training. Um, so the program specifically provided to women in these ultra poor households in rural Bangladesh, first assets, including cattle, goats, poultry birds, land for horticulture, um, and second, in intensive training on how to use those assets for income generation, um, including improved technology, management practices, and so on. So the first phase of TUP was 2002 to 2006. Um, the second phase was what BRAC worked with us on studying, and this was from 2007 to 2011, and it was designed as a randomized control trial. In reference to the title, I was curious about um, the term flypaper effects, and, and I'm some of the audience would not be familiar with it, especially who did not read the paper. So if you could just quickly um, explain that. Also, um, when we talk about control and ownership. I was curious about what dimensions of control does the paper really focus on? If you could elaborate that uh, a bit, that'll be really good. Of course. So I mentioned the program provided asset transfers and training to women in ultra-poor households with the objective of improving those households' asset ownership and income generation, and ultimately aiming to support those households in graduating from poverty. 
um, what, what Brack proposed to study with us was the gender implications um, within the household. So um, how does women's versus men's um, joint ownership and control over assets change? So where does this flypaper effects term come in? Now, I don't know if people even know anymore what flypaper is. Um, it's frankly a little bit gross. It's this very sticky paper that people used to hang up in strips from the ceiling and hope that flies would literally just fly into and get stuck on this paper. Um, so the imagery is not great, but the idea is of something sticking to something and staying stuck. So in this, so it's used in terms of kind of development um, programming sometimes to refer to the idea of targeting something to someone and having it stick to them. So in this study, we wanted to look at the extent to which the program transfers to women actually stuck to them. So again, say the program provides a cow to women, um, looking at do dimensions of control and ownership of that cow actually stick with her? So again, we tried to ask specifically about different kinds of control rights given the complexity of ownership context. So if we're talking about a cow, is she not just doing the work to take care of it, but actually able to take decisions on selling the cow, controlling the income from selling it? But moreover, and importantly, um, if there are proceeds from you know, that asset and those are used to invest in other assets like non-agricultural assets, um, who owns and has control rights over those and so on. So this kind of feeds into broader thinking around household bargaining models and economics. In economics, we often model um, different household members' bargaining power within the household is determined by their threat points or outside options meaning what they could leave the relationship or what they could control and what we kind of technically call a non-cooperative equilibrium. Um, and in these theoretical models, essentially, the more they could leave the relationship with, the more credible is their threat to leave that relationship and the more leverage they have within the relationship. So in our paper, we consider that relative resource control is a key feature of that threat point. So the more kind of relative resource control a household member has, the greater the bargaining power of that household member. So we look at not just asset control of men and women, but we also look at dimensions of bargaining power, including women's decision making about their mobility, their work, control over their income, purchases for themselves, their role and decisions for household budgeting, and so on. And again, because this is mixed method, um, we look at all those things quantitatively, but we also had qualitative research um, where interviewers were talking with women um, who received the program to understand how they themselves perceived the program effects and benefits. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'll, I'll jump straight into the findings and, and what are the main findings that you find, uh, especially in relation to ownership and the rights over the transferred livestock, because I believe the program, the majority of the transfers were livestock in this case. And also um, any uh, comments about other intra-household assets ownerships, um, especially in terms of the intra-household uh, bargaining between the husband and the wife. So essentially what we find is in terms of the transferred livestock, which was transferred to women, on average, women do seem to retain control over that. Um, in particular, the program slightly increases ownership by men of the transferred livestock, but causes much larger increases in sole or joint ownership by women. 
So it doesn't seem that men are taking over control of the livestock that was transferred to women. However, what we also find is that all proceeds from the transferred livestock or the income that was generated from the livestock seems to get reinvested into other assets like agricultural productive assets, non-agricultural productive assets, consumer durables, land. And these seem to be controlled almost solely by men. So when you bring together um, the transferred asset along with these other assets, it actually looks like overall resource control is shifting more toward men. So this signals that the transferred assets themselves were sticking to women, the flypaper effect, um, in this setting where women were the named recipient. But when households made investments in new assets rather than the ones transferred from the program, these assets were typically owned solely by men, kind of following um, gender norms on who tends to own um, agricultural, non-agricultural assets. And this actually makes relative resource control in the household more unequal and skewed more to men overall, despite the original transfer going to women. That's um, very interesting that um, because I think one of the aspects of the TUP was that the TUP program did not specify that the woman owned uh, the livestock, but rather just transferred it to them and provided the training. So the fact that they still retain their rights, it's, it's very interesting. And also um, the fact that much of the proceeds are being used by their spouses. Um, it's, it's amazing that you guys could capture that aspect um, within the study empirically. Um, so um, the next question that I have for you really is that how did it impact the woman's um, decision to work as well as, as you uh, mentioned their control over their earnings, um, which you've already touched on. And um, the other aspect that I found was interesting was this actually increased um, the woman's um, involvement within the household and then and kind of like reduced their mobility outside. So and that had a dominant effect on their decision making and control over the household resources. Um, I was wondering if you could um, quickly touch on that and then explain that set of results. Right. So you captured that well. Um, interestingly, we do find that the program also affects women's work and their control over earnings. So we find that the program doesn't change the proportion of work, women who work overall, but does, as you say, shift work from outside the home to inside the home. Um, plausibly because the transferred asset, which is livestock, needs to be maintained within the homestead. And this potentially reduces women's mobility. Um, in particular, the women who are receiving the livestock Previously, we're often working outside the home in jobs like agricultural wage work or being domestic servants. But now that they've been transferred the livestock, they didn't kind of have a reason to leave the home. As you know, in rural Bangladesh, uh, even more so at the time, female seclusion norms prevailed. And if women didn't have a good reason to leave the home, um, particularly economic reasons that kind of required them to leave the home, they likely wouldn't. Um, there was also a sense of status that we saw in the qualitative work associated with women not having to leave the home to work um, because these are such, you know, the, the women are so poor that are in this sample. Essentially not being so poor that you need to work is actually seen as a sign of status. And so that was something that women actually um, saw as a good thing. But it did reduce women's mobility and their ability to control their earnings. So we do find quantitatively that the program significantly decreases women's voice in a range of decisions, 
including control over their own income, purchases for themselves, decision-making for household budgeting. Um, and again, this is consistent with the economic model of relative resource control getting more unequal, favoring men, which actually reduces women's bargaining power. Well, I, I thought that aspect was fascinating, especially how the qualitative and the quantitative study went um, hand in hand. And, and this the insights about the social norms that you just mentioned, I was also one of the, um, I think, um, intangible benefits that the woman mentioned was it increased their social value, and especially within the household. Also that they preferred working at home, given that outside the environment was not that accommodating for females. And, and um, that kind of also goes along with um, what you mentioned. So my comment or question to you here is this, do you think that most RCTs should have a qualitative component um, along with the quantitative part? Because I think they that it gives a lot more insights, especially from this paper, what I've read. And I thought it was beautifully woven in into the story. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that was, as you say, um, really a benefit of having the qualitative work with the quantitative and um, the GAP project kind of anticipated that benefit and made sure that every quantitative study was paired with qualitative work for exactly the reasons you say. Um, I think in an ideal world, we would have qualitative paired with qualitative work in every possible RCT because, or really any, um, any kind of applied research because it really does bring a type of, um, you know, first it kind of helps you triangulate the findings and understand the how and why, but it really also gives you um, invaluable perspective on um, how the recipients of the program themselves see it and what kinds of norms are short, sort of shaping um, the way effects play out. So here, as you say, um, the quantitative results really suggest broadly that despite um, the program targeting um, transfers to women, it didn't actually increase women's overall resource control. If anything, it increased men's um, more than women's, thus increased gender inequality within the household. And the qualitative results do corroborate those patterns, but they also give us women's perception of how they perceive all this. And I also found it really interesting was that women see this all very positively because they speak much more, as you say, to these intangible benefits. Um, like how they now feel good about contributing to the family, their children's schooling, um, about feeling more able to have social interactions with community members, um, you know, having the right clothes to be able to be presentable in a community gathering. Um, and, you know, these are really quite powerful, but you can't pick that up with the quantitative work. Um, so despite acknowledging some of the same patterns we see in the quantitative work, in the qualitative work, women were by and large really describing the program as having positive and empowering effects for them. And so there are a few possible dimensions to this. Um, one, you know, existing evidence from Bangladesh suggests that um, among women there, there may in general simply be more of a collective mindset and just less focus on individual rights than kind of a conventional Western mindset. And so women may just truly be focused less on, for example, whether they themselves control the proceeds, whether they themselves, you know, control agricultural assets and focus more on the fact that they can contribute to the household. Um, there's also an interesting aspect that in this context, um, asserting individual rights over assets may simply not be worth creating conflict 
for women, if it means losing family support, um, at least at the time, um, probably to some extent still now, there are many things women simply can't do without male or family support, including being involved in the community, even kind of being involved in the market because of um, some of the mobility and um, female seclusion norms. Certainly old age support is very difficult for women without family support. So losing family support over trying to control proceeds from cow's milk may simply just not be worth it. And so they may have focused on um, the contribution of the family rather than the individual rights because of the context they're in. Um, another interesting feature that you alluded to is that women acknowledge they leave the house less now and have less mobility, but see that as a good thing because the environment outside the home is simply hostile to women in many ways. You know, they face Eve teasing, harassment, um, particularly as poor women. Um, so given that hostile environment outside the home, they actually prefer to stay more at home. Um, so one could say that perhaps in a different environment where safe, decent work outside the home was an option, they may have seen the loss of work and mobility as a negative, but taking in everything into consideration in this context, um, they actually did not feel that way. Since you mentioned that the phase two study really uh, was designed as a randomized control trial, if you could briefly explain RCTs and where does the idea of um, identification come into this, I think the students would really appreciate that. To try to not make it too painful, um, I'll try to keep it simple. So in the context of applied economics, Identification usually refers to being able to say a relationship between two things is causal rather than simply a correlation. So it's not just that these two things move together, but that one actually causes the other. So a simple example of where identification might be challenging is, say, if you were trying to understand how exercise contributes to how many years people live. Um, you might find a relationship where, on average, a person doing more exercise is correlated with that person living longer. Um, but it may be hard to identify if more exercise is fully causing that person to live longer, or also in part if, say, people who exercise more have other healthy habits, like maintaining a healthy diet, and this is also partly causing greater longevity. Or it could be, in part, the people who are unwell find it hard to exercise, so doing more exercise partly just picks up being well enough to exercise. Um, so this is an example where you might find a correlation that you have to do a little bit more work to figure out the causal relationship underlying it. So there's many approaches to seeking identification in applied research. Um, so one category is experimental approaches, and then there's a whole host of quasi-experimental and non-experimental approaches. Um, but focusing on the former, experimental approaches, what this type of research usually does is randomly assigns participants to either receive an intervention or not receive an intervention. So many people, even outside the social sciences, are familiar with the way clinical trials um, randomize participants to either get a drug or get a placebo, um, then compare average outcomes of participants who got the real drug versus average outcomes of those who got the placebo to estimate effects of the drug itself. Um, and of course, we heard all about this with the COVID vaccines and all kinds of new drugs. So the, essentially the idea there is that because participants are randomly assigned to getting the real drug versus the placebo, 
they should on average be similar in all ways other than getting the drug versus the placebo. So any average differences you find between those two groups should be actually caused by getting the drug versus the placebo. So in the exercise example, this would be if you randomly assigned some people to exercise and others not, you could assume that you know, their diets and so on may not be different. But what you get by the randomization is that um, this allows us to identify um, a causal relationship as instead of a correlation. So for a social science randomized control trial or RCT, we don't trust drugs, um, but often some intervention. So the participants randomized to get the intervention or a treatment group, the participants randomized to not get the intervention or a control group, and we compare the, their outcomes to identify the average causal effect of the intervention. In large programs, this is often really challenging to set up. It's very hard to actually randomize participants to either get an intervention or not um, for political reasons, for logistical reasons. Um, but as I mentioned, the sec in the second phase of BRAC's program, they and their collaborators managed to actually do exactly that, um, even in this quite large program. So that was great because it really allows rigorous evaluation and allows causal identification of the effects of the program, um, comparing the participants randomly aside to receive it versus those not. Um, and so there have been several evaluations looking at different outcomes, but in this context for our paper, we were comparing the outcomes related to asset ownership and control of those who received the program versus those who didn't. Based on the findings of the study, if you could give one policy suggestion, maybe to uh, the government of Bangladesh or even Prague, um, what would it be? First, I'll say that I do think in recent years, there has been some shifts in thinking among policymakers globally, um, including around gender and giving more attention to how effects play out within the household. Um, and ministries in Bangladesh have in particular been quite thoughtful and receptive um, about gender and engaging with research including thinking um, quite intentionally about how to engage and empower women. And again, BRAC proactively wanted to do this research. Um, so I think in Bangladesh, there's really a culture of um, taking research seriously and also giving attention to gender, um, which is really wonderful. But in general, I would um, simply urge attention to gender, specifically careful consideration of how programs and policies are differently experienced by men and women, how programs differently affect men and women, and to not assume that any program that causes a certain improvement in the household as a whole, on average, is necessarily going to cause the exact same improvement for each individual household member. Um, and when research is possible, really prioritizing trying to pull that apart. So in this case, um, asset control and ownership for the household as a whole certainly increased, um, but that was much more nuanced and ambiguous for women, even though they were actually the target recipient. Um, and honestly, many times programs simply don't have any objectives focused on gender, they're gender blind in their design, and they assume this will lead to, at worst, neutral effects on gender equality. Um, but we actually know from experience that gender-blind designs can actually reinforce and exacerbate existing gender inequality. So it really is important, even if you don't have gender objectives, to be mindful of gender. Um, a related point is if the goal is if a goal is to increase women's control over assets, 
um, not to assume that just naming the woman as the recipient um, of an asset transfer is sufficient to ensure that her overall asset control and ownership will increase. In this case, the transferred asset did stick to her, um, but even then it wasn't a given that any proceeds from that asset um, would go towards um, assets that would stay in her control. They could go to her husband, they could go to other household members, um, and that may be shaped by norms in that context. So if programs do want to increase women's resource control, um, program implementers can think about being proactive in trying to support women in retaining that control, um, really through engaging households and communities. So providing contextually appropriate messaging and sensitization to household members, community members, um, in this case, the proceeds from the asset transfers are intended to be um, also controlled by women, you know, not necessarily solely, but that women should be kind of involved in all aspects of um, how the program plays out and making it acceptable for women to actually have those roles. So to the extent possible, um, sensitizing communities to allow women to actually participate in coming to markets, making investments in those resources. Um, and one feature of that that's um, important to be mindful of is sometimes when we think of um, giving attention to gender, we think we need to work more with women. Certainly there's that, but it's also important to work with their whole household and community members since they are often the ones who kind of influence um, what is possible for women in their contexts. Thank you. That is a very solid advice and very concrete. And speaking of advice, um, this is advice coming from you to the budding economists, people studying economics in the undergrad and the masters mainly. If you could share any word of advice for them, uh, especially those who are planning to build a career in applied research, uh, particularly with an eye uh, to informing policy. And um, since you've been doing that for so long and um, fantastically, so that will be very, very, I'm, I'm sure they'll be very grateful if you do. Thank you. Uh, welcome to all of them to the discipline. Glad to have um, new thinking and new ideas. Um, in terms of advice, I think students of economics are certainly well served to learn as much as they can about rigorous methods for kind of conceptualizing and analyzing while also being mindful that the real world is messy and not every situation we'd like to study is going to lend itself to using some of these methods. For example, we simply can't always have a randomized control trial for any program whose effects we want to understand. Um, even when you do have a randomized control trial, things always go wrong um, that you have to figure out how to account for. But that said, it is really useful to learn well how to conduct and analyze RCTs so you have the tools when the opportunities arise, so you can assess others' work using these tools, at the same time learning as much as you can about other non-experimental or quasi-experimental tools, um, you know, regression discontinuity, matching, weighting approaches, instrumental variables, and so on. And then to get a view of the real world, it really is wonderful if you're able to find opportunities for internships um, and just doing hands-on um, research work, whether that's supporting a professor or finding an organization um, where you can try um, actually doing policy research and seeing what grabs your interest and what's what it's like to do this work. 
Um, but related to some of the points you made earlier, one important lesson I've learned, um, economics is a wonderful discipline, but we um, shouldn't start to think it's superior to other disciplines and we have nothing to learn from them. Um, recognizing the importance of other disciplines for our work includes, you know, bringing in qualitative work and literature review and collaboration with other disciplines that can help understand some of the anthropological or sociological context, for example, um, and in general, bringing insights from other disciplines um, can simply make the work we do to understand human behavior better in economics. Um, and then similarly, we should always remember that the people whose lives we study are the experts on their own lives and trying to bring their voice into the research is important. It's challenging, but it's important. So again, at a minimum, as you mentioned, qualitative work really helps with this perspective. Um, but I think economics is still right now working through how to make our research kind of less extractive and to better elevate the voices of the communities we study when we try to inform policy that affects them. So this is also a hope that our budding economists um, can take this effort forward um, and do better than we have so far. Thank you. That that is beautiful. <laughs> um, that you actually reminded me of two instances from my life. Um, uh, my first ever RA work was actually with an anthropologist, and, uh -huh. and not with an economist. And I and I loved working with her. And I I was lucky to um, start off my career at Brack University, where the economics department and anthropology and sociology are combined together. So so I I learned a lot from them. Uh, while I was working through. So interdisciplinary work in economics is very, very important, especially in applied work. Thank you. And and the other comment that you made that um, the poor people, they do know the best about themselves. That reminded me of, of a conversation that I had uh, with Fazl Hassan Abed, who was the founder of BRAC. And um, um, one of the comments that he had made is that a lot of the civil bureaucrats in Bangladesh, they don't trust the poor people to be able to help themselves. And that is a trust that we really need to uh, build. Yeah. And on that last point, I think um, most of my work is on social protection. Um, and that's really been a running debate there. You know, if you provide cash transfers directly to poor people, can you trust them to use it? the way that you um, want them to. And I think the evidence by and large is borne out that people know what to do with um, the resources you give them. You know, they know how to um, use resources to improve their lives and um, we don't need to be so paternalistic. Uh, so I think the evidence has helped um, shape some of those views. And there's, as you say, I think there's been some evolution in that trust but there's still a ways to go. Thank you so much, Alini, for your time. Um, I know you've had a very, very busy schedule. So thank you for making time for us and and, and for the podcast. And um, I will be seeing you soon, hopefully. Truly a pleasure. Um, great conversation. And um, I am excited that students are joining our discipline. Thanks again.